Good morning, Christ Church. We are in a series called Becoming Builders of Unity, and uh, we kicked it off last week. If you missed that, you can go check that online. And by the way, we have a brand new website that went up. Uh, it just revamped, spent months and months now, uh, just kind of revamping everything. And um, so you can go check that as, as well. And, uh, but anyway, last week's sermon, if you want to catch up, the, the kickoff was last week. We're talking about becoming builders of unity. And you might remember that that's part of, a, of a, this whole season that began with Advent and is going to go until Easter, that we're calling a season of shalom. And looking at what it means to be builders of unity, but also tenders of the garden. And then becoming who we are. We're in this series. Uh, we're going to look at unity and unity building from different angles, learning how to be a countercultural community of, of friends and followers of Jesus. You realize how closely unity and humility are tied together. Unity and humility. One breeds the other. They're kind of like conjoined t- twins. They, they depend on each other for life, perpetually connected. I've seen some occasions when pride, for instance, won out and harmony went down. Unity faded away. The church is most beautiful when it reflects Christ most clearly. The church is most beautiful when it reflects Christ. Paul sees disunity Brewing in Philippi, that's our reading from uh, our first reading or second reading today from Philippians 2. And he sees this disunity brewing in Philippi and he writes to them and he says, If you want to experience genuine unity with one another, the key is to reflect Jesus. Be like him, think like him. It starts with this heart attitude. And the character that the character quality that Paul points to in Jesus is Jesus' humility. Paul says, if you want unity, in other words, you need to have the same attitude Jesus did, who, being God, emptied himself in humility all the way to the cross. If you want unity, be like Jesus in this way, and then he references that self-emptying descent all the way to the cross by Jesus Christ. Jesus did not consider his heavenly status something to hold on to, to clutch. Jesus, being in the very nature God, did what God does, emptied himself. He went low. He went down all the way to the cross. Now, it's interesting. There's a little nuance here that is worth noting, and, and that is he did not do this descend from this heavenly status and privilege. He didn't descend down into humanity and lower himself, so to speak, despite the fact that he is God. Like like it was this magnanimous departure from his divine status, stepping kind of out of that in order to do this thing down here for us. He did it because he is God. Do you see the difference? He did it because this is what God does. This is actually part of the very definition of being God. He doesn't have to depart from Godness to make this descent. It's part of the very definition of being God that our God is a God who does this kind of thing. So he reveals what it means to be God. 
in the act of the incarnation and in this descent. He shows us what God is like. To be God is to empty oneself for love and for the sake of those that you love. So Paul says, if you want unity, you need to have this same humility as Jesus. You need to have the same attitude Jesus did, who, being God, emptied himself in humility all the way to the cross. So what does Paul want them to do? Paul gets pretty practical with them. Let's look first here, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, complete, it by, complete my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Make my joy complete. This is Paul's appeal. This is actually the only command in this whole paragraph. There's no other command here except this. Complete my joy is the command. And it reveals something essential. And that is joy disappears when the community is fractured. Joy disappears when the community is fractured. Stated positively, unity is required for there to be the spirit of joy, the completion of joy. So if the goal is to establish the joy of community, how do we get there? How do we do this? And Paul says it's by pursuing humility in the same way Jesus did, as he didn't clutch his heavenly privilege but descended into human suffering. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Now here's where he gets practical. Here's how you uh, act in this humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, putting oneself Before others, these are Paul's concerns about what's going on in Philippi. Thinking you know better, thinking you can do better, thinking you are better, this is Paul's concern. Selfish ambition, he mentions. Almost every time you see the word ambition uh, in Scripture, you see the word, as a negative thing, you see the word selfish in front of it, and that's key. Selfish ambition. You can have godly ambition. You can have dreams and hopes that are ambitious. You can have ambition for the kingdom of God, but not selfish ambition. So that qualifier makes all the difference, and that kills unity and relationship. When it's an ambition that's not for the greater good, for the highest good, for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom... But it's selfish ambition. It kills unity and relationship. Paul says, walk in humility by exalting others. Put them before yourself. Not acting out of selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit is a kind of excessive self-regard. Exalt others. Don't act out of this selfish ambition or conceit. Have a kind of other interest. Not just a self-interest. Care about what's best for them. Care about what's best for the whole. Last week we talked about how unity is grounded in the triune God and the very gospel itself. It finds its footing. Unity finds its footing, its source. It's rooted in 
the very triune God itself, who is the three-in-one, diversity and unity. Our display of God's glory depends on it. Our witness to the gospel depends on it. We talked about that. A watching world can tell stories of Christian disunity, of communities of followers of Jesus being fractured. Uh, They can smell it when they're near it. They can smell pride, selfish ambition, excessive self-regard in the church. The kind of unity we're talking about is is not a, a warm, fuzzy kind of feeling, a warm, fuzzy kind of, it takes work, it takes, it hurts, this kind of unity. It requires humility, laying ourselves down, sometimes laying our rights down for the sake of the whole. This disunity that we often experience, it can be caused by miscommunication or misunderstanding or misjudgment, it can be caused by Sin, this is why the New Testament is so strong about the power of the tongue, for instance, about our speech. You read in James about gossip, about rumors. We seek unity because our witness to the gospel depends on it. The logic of the gospel demands unity. The gospel announces that God reigns over all. That we are sons of the king and daughters of this king. And we are so on the basis of nothing about ourselves. It's, we are not sons and daughters on the king, of the king because of our race or class or income level or sociocultural descriptions. Uh, this is where Paul speaks to the Galatians and see there it says, neither Jew nor Greek, uh, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. These distinctions, he's saying, don't matter. It's all mercy. Now, it's all grace That is the only basis on which we have any kind of favor in the presence of God is because he has shown us mercy, every one of us, have leveled at the foot of the cross. It's all mercy. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. Jesus alone is what draws different people together. And this is where it speaks to the gospel. We're a community formed around Jesus. When people who are very similar come together in unity, very, very like people come together in unity, that's not a very powerful witness to the gospel. But when people who are unlike come together and are united, and somebody from the out says, what made that happen? How is that possible? What is different that that could happen in that community, when people who are unlike come together, there's a tremendous witness to the compelling beauty of the gospel and the mercy and grace of God by which we all come before the throne of God. That kind of reconciliation is a powerful witness. So humility is at the heart of this unity that Paul seeks and what he's speaking to them in Philippians 2. I want to reflect with you for a little bit on some of the different things that re- humility is required for. And you're going, to, you're going to see like how this is so foundation. This virtue, humility, is foundational to so much of what it simply means to be a Christian, much less to be the church that's unified. So here are several things humility is required for. Humility is required in order to learn, grow, and change. 
Now, how essential, how fundamental is that? Simply to learn, to grow in any kind of way, to change. The person with humility says, I don't have a complete grasp of this. Uh, there's something that I think I've yet to learn here. I think, I think I need to seek out either someone, book, people, community. I need, I need to grow here. Someone who has humility knows they have more to learn. Someone who knows that they need to grow says, I've got room for improvement. Maybe I have lots of room for improvement. Someone with humility is more likely to change. They can say, something needs to be different about me. Something needs to be better about me. Humility, before the change even comes, there has to be this humility. Before the growth comes, there has to be humility. Before there's learning, there has to be humility. Be curious about ourselves. Be curious about someone or something. Curiosity means you still have something to learn, something to understand, something to experience. Our faith as followers of Jesus invites us into this kind of curiosity, this self-curiosity, this God-curiosity, this life and world curiosity. Our life in Christ invites us into that kind of curious life. There's a, one of our a family member, part of our extended family, gave a gift to someone in our family of a book by this title. It's called A Curious Faith. And I, uh, I picked it up, was kind of flipping through it around Christmas time, and I love what this book is doing. I haven't read it yet, but as I just kind of thumb through some of the table of contents and a few of the chapters, I want to share with you um, just kind of the, the, the framework of this book. So what they do in this book is they take all these questions of Scripture, the curiosity we see in the Bible, and they're questions that we ask God or that God asks us or that Jesus asks uh, his disciples or the Pharisees. And it, it reflects on all these different questions as we are a people who have a curious faith. So let me give you some examples. Let's put these up. These are questions God asks in the Old Testament. Where are you? Now think about this. Think about if he's asking, apply this to yourself and just... Let your imagination go a little bit about how you might answer some of these questions. Now, we're going to speed through these, but you'll get a, a taste of it. Where are you? Who told you that? What have you done? Where are you going? What is your name? What's in your hand? What are you doing here? Where were you when I created all this? Will you correct me? Whom shall I send? Is it right for you to be angry? I mean, I, we could journal on just one of those questions for the rest of today, right? <laughs> then questions we ask God. This is fun. Like, let's go to the next one. Here are ones that we might that, that come from Scripture that are, are directed in Scripture to God. Why was I born? Jeremiah is asking that question. Why so downcast? And this is the psalmist speaking to his own soul, kind of divine, holy self-talk. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> what, or why are you down? And self-interrogating a little bit to understand. What is, what's this about? How can I be right with you? Where are you? Why do you hide from me? These are questions for God. How long, Lord, 
How many ask that question? How many of you asking, that's just rhetorical, but how many of you asking that right now in some area of your life? Where can I go? Why do you make me look at injustice? There's a curiosity that underneath this curiosity is humility. And this kind of posture that says, I have so much to learn. I have so many ways to grow. There are so many ways that I want to change. And I recognize that. I admit that. I name that. There's a humility that is fundamental, essential. It's a prerequisite to any growth, learning, or change in our lives. And these questions apply that attitude that was in Jesus, applies it to our own relationship with God, where we speak from a posture of lowliness. And here's some questions that Jesus asks us. What are you looking for? That's one that could fuel some journaling, perhaps, for a couple hours. Do you want to be well? You know, I find sometimes that I really like my (laughs) self-pity. And I need to be asked, okay, Cliff, do you really want to be well, or do you really enjoy that self-pity? Where is your faith? Who condemns you? Are you not much more valuable? Do you believe I'm able to do this? Who do you say I am? Can you wait with me? That's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus to his Father. Why are you crying? And who are you looking for? This is a resurrection appearance. Do you love me? This reconciling moment with Peter who had denied him. And now he gets to say three times, yes, I love you. Humility is required in order to live with this kind of curiosity, a curiosity that will lead us deeper into the love and knowledge of God. And the love and knowledge of ourselves, this dual knowledge that feeds each other, the more we understand ourselves, the more we know God, the more we know God, the clearer we understand ourselves. There's a cycle between those two. And this life of humility and curiosity facilitates that cycle of knowledge, a cycle of understanding of God and His work in our lives. Let's look at some other things that humility is required for. Um, it, we've just mentioned it's, it's required to live with curiosity. Um, humility is required in order to give someone the benefit of the doubt. You can't give someone the benefit of the doubt, which is essential in relationship and community. If we're always suspicious, it's going to fracture community, and it's going to fracture relationship. To give the benefit of the doubt is to live with humility. Pride says, I know their motive. I know what they're doing here. Humility says, maybe there's more to this moment than I understand. Humility says, maybe I don't have the whole story. And there's a benefit of the doubt because there's a humility about one's own perception. 
Humility is also required to pay attention to our own blind spots. The ability in conversations to say, you know, I might be reading into what I'm hearing here, or I might have interpreted what's being said because I was triggered by something from my own life or past, and it's a blind spot I have that I can't hear people on their own terms when they're talking about this certain thing, or that I feel a certain way on this topic because it just kind of shut down my ability to to really hear what they're saying because it it becomes more about me at that moment. That's a blind spot. We have all kinds of ways. There's multiple ways, multiple kinds of blind spots that we can have in our communication and relationships with each other. And this is, again, how humility is essential to unity, to relationship. It's required to give one the benefit of the doubt. Humility is also required to pay attention or give attention to our worst, and someone else's best. Now, think about that for a minute. Here's our tendency. Our tendency is to give attention to our best and someone else's worst, and then compare, right? It takes humility to give attention to our worst and someone else's best. But again, the work of relationship and the work of unity it's not going to happen unless we can learn to do that. You know, in, in, in reasoning, rhetoric, and argument, there's what's often referred to as the straw man. You know, like that's someone else's worst. The worst argument someone else has, take that down as, and that it supposedly proves your point. And the idea here in sense of rhetoric or argument would be to create a steel man of the other person's argument. And if you can win that argument, then you can feel a little bit more confident. <laughs> you still should have humility, but <laughs> because it might be a blind spot. Admit the validity and sometimes the superiority of another person's point of view. It takes humility to do that, to admit that someone else's point of view might have that validity, and not only validity, but sometimes might even be superior, might be more right, more true. Humility is required to yield to the greater good, even when we disagree with something. So let's get practical here. Um, there's a guy in Australia named John Dixon that um, is just fantastic. He's written on a number of different subjects about the Christian faith, and um, including mission, apologetics. Um, I just love the stuff he does. He wrote this book once that he then... Uh, it was not so much writing for the church, but he wrote it to a general population and readership, and especially was talking to leaders and leaders of organizations, and he, he was kind of writing into that space of leadership. And so he chose, being one who has read widely in leadership, he chose the topic of humility for leaders to learn and grow in. And he wrote this book called Humilitas, and... Um, In this, his final chapter gives some really great practical ways to actually grow in humility. So if we, if everything that I've been saying this morning, if it's landing somewhere that you say, yeah, I I want to, I want to live in humility or I want to grow in humility, how do I do that? And, uh, and that's what he gets to in this last chapter. So let's look at a few of these together. 
First of all, how do we grow in humility? First, we are shaped by what we love. He makes this point. And this is across the board, not just about humility. This is a, a rule of life. Um, cultivate, therefore, a love for humility. He says this, this is a quote, Noticing the inherent beauty of a thing is the first step in organizing our thoughts and actions around it. Loving humility, admiring it, longing for it, are what kickstart the process of being transformed by it. Cultivating a love and admiration for it is where it starts to be transformed by it. Next thing he says, reflect on the lives of the humble. Now, this can come in different ways. It could be people in your own life and world, friends or family. But let's go a a bit more expansive, the lives of the saints. This is one of the benefits of reading and engaging the lives of the saints, looking throughout history and or even now around us. Who are some of the saints of God who have exhibited this? And let's reflect on their lives. A great way to do that is biography. Read some biographies of people who demonstrated this kind of humility. Lives of the saints. I'm reading a biography about Mother Teresa right now. Oh, my goodness. It's blowing me away. Unbelievable what she went through and what came out after her death about her own inner struggles and how she continued to faithfully love and serve for decades without much, what felt like much fuel inside to keep her going. There was such a humility, a laying down of her lives. You know what? Even um, counter examples um, can be really helpful. Not saints, but the absolute opposite, horrible people. (laughs) It can be a great object lesson. Read about some of the tragedies of history. Read about some of the horrible people of history. And then what happens? The fruit And that is a lesson for us in the importance of humility of a life. So reading on both ends of that spectrum and reflecting on the lives of the humble, but also the hubris of some people and what that does. All right, the third one, conduct thought experiments in humility. And this would be like an imaginative exercise that opens up, when when we do a thought experiment, it opens up possibilities, opens up our imagination. In a difficult situation, sometimes there's a dilemma. We don't know what to do. We just do thought experiments. Well, what if, what if this were the case? What if that were the case? And it can sometimes clarify a situation. Dixon describes it this way as the process of putting yourself in another's situation. Do a thought experiment where you put yourself in their situation. And it raises new information and provides a clearer view of the factors involved. Now, it might not change your view but it will give you greater depth of perspective. Next one, act humbly. Now, that might seem really obvious, but here's what he's getting at. Have you ever heard the, for anybody say, fake it till you make it? Is that, it, it, can work, it works. It, so there are ways in life where both our thoughts shape our actions, and that's how we usually think about how this works, but our actions also shape our thoughts. And so we need to be doing both. We need to be, we don't wait until we have internalized a mind frame of humility and only then do we start to do humble things. We do humble things even when it's not coming from a deep place inside. It might be pure obedience. We're just forcing ourselves to do something humble. What happens is our heart follows (laughs) and the action 
leads our thinking and heart, and we get shaped by what we're doing. When we're keeping in step with the Spirit, through obedience, it does something to our soul. So just do something humble. It's a great place to start if you want to cultivate a character of humility. All right, next one. Invite criticism. Yeah, I hear that. (laughs) Don't be threatened by it. You will sometimes get some crazy comments, but you'll also get some nuggets that are the Holy Spirit's word, that are to lead you and transform you. And you'll be invited to submit it to the Lord for discernment. And then as you open yourself up in humility to what the Lord might be saying, we can often learn something through criticism, even if there's a temptation to just cast it all aside, baby in bathwater. All right, last one. Forget about being humble. (laughs) And what he says, uh, in other words, don't style yourself as humble, you know? That does, it goes in the opposite direction. And he, he, re, he, he, he gives this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in you and what you, sa- and what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. There's a kind of self-forgetfulness, in other words, that, that humility displays. Now let's close again with Paul's words to the church in Philippi and God's word to us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be like you as individuals and as a community. And uh, Lord, it's a scary thing to pray that because to be like you means to go low. And it means to go to the cross with you. But we also know that resurrection follows. And we can't get to resurrection with you without going through the cross with you. So Lord, we do ask Would you make us like you? Would you take us through that journey of death to self and new life risen in you? Would you form in us this kind of humility that allows us to live with each other as friends and as family and as your church with a posture of learning, change, growth, listening, that we might be shaped into your likeness, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.